Well, good morning. My name is Adam. As Dustin said, I'm one of the pastors here alongside Dustin. And as he also said, we are in a series on the Minor Prophets. And uh, this is week three. And as you can tell, some of you will be familiar with the Minor Prophets. You may even have uh, learned a song when you were little to memorize the books of the Bible. And if so, you're going to notice that the prophets are a little out of order because we're going through them in chronological order. Um, as opposed to the order that you find them in your Bible. Now, as we begin this morning, um, you know, the Bible gives us um, several things to symbolize the gospel in our lives. The gospel, which literally means good news. So the good news of Jesus, his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the grave in victory, the Bible gives us several things that we get to have as a physical symbol of that good news of Jesus. One of those is baptism. Uh, We got to talk about that and celebrate baptism just several weeks ago. When an individual goes under the water in baptism, it represents uh, Jesus after he had died being buried in the grave. And when the individual comes up out of the water, it represents the resurrection of Jesus. But it also represents what happens in us. That when we give our lives to Jesus, we die. Our old self dies and is buried, and we are raised up into new life. Another one of those symbols is communion. We're going to have the opportunity to celebrate that together at the end of our time. The bread and the cup representing the sacrifice that Jesus made. That the broken bread represents his broken body on the cross. And the the wine or the juice, the cup, represents the new covenant we have with God by his blood. Now covenant, that's an interesting word. And it also reminds us of another institution that God has given to represent the gospel or good news. And that's one of marriage. The Bible teaches that in Ephesians chapter 5, when marriage is done correctly, it symbolizes the way that we are united to God just as a husband and wife are united in the covenant of marriage. So just out of curiosity, I'm curious who has been married the longest in this room. So let's, let's just see if, if you're more, I know we're, we're well beyond this, but more than 20 years, just raise your hand of marriage. Okay. More than 30 years, more than 40 years, more than 50 years, more than 60 years. Okay. So we're in the fifties. Okay. Okay. So how long have you guys been married? 59. 59. Can anyone beat that? Okay, congratulations. That's awesome. Now let's find the newlyweds. Uh, Anyone in here been married less than a year? Okay, how long? Seven months. Yes, congratulations. That's awesome. You know, we call marriage a covenant, uh, which is a unique way of describing a relationship that stands in contrast to another kind of relationship that we refer to as a contract. When you enter into a contract with someone, uh, there are promises made on both ends. And if one person breaks their end of the deal, then the relationship is severed and the other party no longer holds any obligation. For example, if I decide to sell you a vehicle, we're going to enter into a contract. We may physically sign something or it may be a verbal contract. 
I agree to give you a vehicle, you agree to give me money. If I fail on my end of this relationship and I don't give you a vehicle, then you are under no obligation to give me money. That's how a contract works. But a covenant works differently. In a covenant, both sides make agreements, but as a part of that relationship, there's an agreement that if you break your end of the deal, I will still keep mine. And that's what marriage is designed to be like, but it also speaks to our relationship with God. That when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus, we enter into a covenant relationship with Him that, w- that says if one side breaks their end of the deal, the other will remain faithful. This idea of covenant is really important for the book of Hosea that we're going to talk about today both the covenant of marriage and the covenant that we have with God. Now, just quickly, just as a way of context, we're not going to go into this much. We talked about this a couple weeks ago to set up the series. And so uh, if you want to know more about the context historically of where we're at, then you can go back and watch or listen to the message a few weeks ago. Here's a little timeline of uh, ancient Israel. And there's a couple key things that I really want to draw your attention to. And one of those is the divided kingdom. At one time, Israel was one nation made up of 12 tribes, but they went through a terrible split, similar to a civil war, and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and the northern kingdom was usually called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. The reason it was called Ephraim is the first king of this new northern kingdom came from the tribe of Ephraim. And so the first kings and the royal family lived in that territory. And so they sort of were seen as a symbol for the whole kingdom. And Hosea, his ministry as a prophet, falls after the kingdom has divided, but before the Assyrian army will come in and destroy and defeat the northern kingdom. Hosea lived in the uh, mid-8th century B.C., He was a contemporary of Amos, who we talked about last week. So Hosea and Amos would no doubt have known about one another. They might have actually known one another and been friends. Um, But they would have operated in their ministries about the same time. And so we're going to jump into Hosea. For some of you, you know what's coming. For some of you, this will be a shock to you that some of these things are even in the Bible at all. It's shocking, but the shocking nature of what we're going to read about today is, in fact, the whole point. And so let's begin in Hosea chapter 1 with the introduction to the man, his life, and his ministry of Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, the word harlotry and whoredom is on 
every page and in almost every paragraph of all 14 chapters of this entire book. Now, if we were to say it maybe in a little bit more modern way, God's words would have sounded something like this. Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land and people is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so Hosea obeys God's command and marries this promiscuous woman named Gomer. And after they were married, they began to have kids. Now, normally that would symbol a time of joy and celebration within a new marriage. But as we're going to see, things are not as happily ever after as we would like to think. I want to scan through a couple verses in chapter 1. Verse 4, And the Lord said to him, after they have their first child, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, uh, this requires some looking back into history, back in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. The current king of this northern kingdom, Israel, is a great-grandson of a man named Jehu. And this time and the events that took place in Jezreel were a very dark moment for their people. It was full of violence and bloodshed, murdering of family members and friends. And so God tells Hosea, you're going to name your first child after this place, Jezreel, as a remembrance of the violence and the sinfulness and the rebellion that took place there. And then... Hosea and Gomer will have another child. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. As if things couldn't get much worse. Verse 8, when she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son Verse 9 won't be on the screen, but let me read it for you. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. And so, Hosea marries Gomer, and they have three children. And these names are to be a reflection of the state. Not just of what Hosea's family looks like, but all the family of God, all of God's people. Jezreel a reminder of their sin and violence. No mercy, a reminder of God's judgment. Not my people, a reminder of the consequences of their actions. It's pretty bad. Unfortunately, it doesn't get better. It actually gets far worse. Because what we find out is that Gomer is not going to be faithful to her new husband, Hosea. And she's going to go back to a life she formerly lived. As a former prostitute, she's going to go back to her former clients. As she says in chapter 2, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She chases all the financial comforts she once had when men would throw money and gifts and items of luxury at her for the privilege of spending a night in her bed. 
And then in chapter 3, it gets even worse. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And so not only does Gomer leave Hosea, but whether willingly or by force, finds herself enslaved as a prostitute uh, once again. And God calls Hosea to go and to pay her price to set her free and to bring her home once again. Hosea is an interesting book in many ways. It's a mixture of sermons from Hosea as a prophet to the people, combined with some poetry. And it's a mixture of common life realities that everyone in his audience would have been familiar with. Things like agriculture, marriage, children, temple worship, wartime. But Hosea also is going to draw upon practices that God instituted and orchestrated many generations ago that his people were supposed to follow. But then also, Hosea is going to reference foreign worship practices. He's going to talk about foreign beliefs and worldviews and social norms that came with the mythology of Baalism, which was the predominant foreign religion of the day. And so sometimes Hosea's imagery makes sense to us, even today, when he talks about realities that are familiar to us. And then sometimes he's going to reference or allude to or even mock um, practices and beliefs that are very foreign to us, and sometimes that can make it a little confusing when we read. Baalism, the predominant religion of the region at that time, its primary god, as you may know, was Baal. And I'm going to share some details about this worship, about uh, this religious mythology and practice that will help to make sense of everything that is said and done in the book of Hosea. Baal, the ancient word, um, can mean master, but generally it means husband. And so the name Baal, the god of this foreign mythology, uh, his name meant husband. And in order to worship Baal, adherents would uh, offer sacrifices from the land, from their, you know, the produce of their agriculture, and exchange in sexual acts in these foreign temples. These acts symbolized the fertility that they thought Baal brought to their land, and they were both physical with actual temple prostitutes and spiritual and that they were uniting themselves to other gods. And so another addition to what makes Hosea unique that adds to his creativity but can also sometimes make it a challenge to read is that the way Hosea presents his arguments and his uh, sermons is in the traditional ancient covenant lawsuit formula. And uh, this is how he presents his accusations and the guilt of the people which is a creative way to preach, a little difficult for us because we're not accustomed to ancient covenant lawsuit formulas, but that's how he presents his sermons. 
Now, at 14 chapters, we've quickly gone through three, which means we're left less than 25% of the way through. And so there's just not enough time for us to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through all of it. But what I do want to do is provide some overview that I think will be helpful uh, as to how the book of Hosea is organized. Because it is organized around cycles of accusation, declaration of punishments or judgment, and then offers of hope. This first cycle is... Uh, symbolized most in Hosea's own life. And here, throughout the book of Hosea, prostitution is likened to adultery, which is then likened to idolatry. And so unfaithfulness to one's spouse is a symbol of unfaithfulness to God. Breaking the covenant of marriage becomes a symbol for breaking the covenant relationship that we have with God, our creator. And so Hosea's family mirrors God's family or God's people. And so prostitution in the family of God and Hosea is our first cycle. The second cycle, this would be chapters four through six, prostitution we see comes from having no knowledge of God. Look at a couple of verses in Hosea chapter five, verses three through four. I know Ephraim, this is another way to describe the northern kingdom, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. And so what happens is God says, I know you, but you don't know me. Really, your idolatry, symbolized in this spiritual prostitution, is a result of you really not knowing me, not knowing who I am. If you knew who I was, if you knew what kind of God I was, if you know and remember what I have done and what I have promised to do, you would never have gone to seek satisfaction and pleasure in anyone or anything else. All this comes down to result, uh, to the, uh, as a result of you not really knowing me. I know you, but you don't really know me. But the offer of hope in this section is that restoration is possible if we seek to know the Lord. Then we enter into the third cycle. That this spiritual prostitution breaks covenant faithfulness to God. Look at chapter 7, verse 10. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. What happened, as we see in this part of the cycle, is that as a nation, they turn to others instead of God. They begin to rely on strong armies to be their protection rather than on the God who promised to protect them. They started to appoint and approve of leaders and kings who were not chosen by God and who refused to honor God. They made alliances with other nations. And as Gomer discovered in her disloyalty to Hosea, 
Turning away from the one who truly loved her did not bring ultimate joy, satisfaction, or freedom. In fact, it brought pain and poverty and ultimately slavery. And God says the same will happen with his people in the northern kingdom of Israel. And turning away from God, the one who truly loved her, they will not find prosperity and joy. They will find pain, poverty, and eventually slavery, literally. The Assyrian Empire, with whom they started to make these alliances with, will soon discover that not only is Israel unfaithful to her own God, Israel is unfaithful with these other nations. So Israel begins making alliances with multiple nations and trying to pit kings against one another. And eventually Assyria discovers it and grows tired of it. And so within just a matter of decades, they will march in with their own armies and destroy the entire northern kingdom. And so what happened with Gomer was a picture of what was going to happen to the whole nation. And chasing after joy and satisfaction and freedom... All they found was pain and poverty and slavery. And then the fourth cycle, that prostitution creates deceitfulness with God. Hosea chapter 11 verse 12 says, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood with violent and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. So what happened is the deceitfulness that the people started to have with one another bled over into deceitfulness with their own God. And so God begins to call them out for their deceitful practices. They were deceitful in business. They were especially deceitful in how they dealt with the poor. They would use false scales to cheat the poor out of what little they had left, but these deceitful actions made them very, very wealthy. And so they took this wealth to, to mean, well, there must be nothing wrong with what they're doing. And so this deception with one another led to deceiving themselves, which led them to try to deceive God. It led to pride, a sense of self-sufficiency, and a total forgetting of God. They were so deceived that they forgot that God had once saved their people from Egypt. And instead, they began turning to Egypt to be saved. One of the alliances they started to form was with Egypt, we read a minute ago. This is what brought about the verse in Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. God wants to remind his people that, that instead of turning to Egypt to be saved, God's true family is saved from Egypt. Just as God had once saved the people out of slavery from Egypt, God called his own out of Egypt. When Hosea says this, Matthew later will reflect on this as being a reflection of Jesus. That Joseph took Mary and Jesus to Egypt to flee Herod when he wanted to kill Jesus. And then God called them out of Egypt 
that God calls His Son, those He treasures, out of Egypt. And this cycle too, though painful, will end with a picture of hope. So what are the big lessons from Hosea? What are we to take away from this strange story that happened thousands of years ago to some prophet and how it reflects to a group of people who lived thousands of years ago who were unfaithful and were destroyed for their disobedience? There's a couple big ideas that we can take from this book. And the first is the scandalous love of God. Hosea chapter 1. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. As scandalous as this would be today, it was just as scandalous 2,800 years ago. What kind of man of God would marry a woman like this? Do you think this affected Hosea's credibility with the people when he stood up as a man of God, as a prophet, trying to declare truth to them? You think they looked at him and said, yeah, we know about your family. We don't really trust you. It was scandalous. But so is the love of God. Romans chapter 10 Verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As sinners, that makes us covenant breakers which means as covenant breakers in this story, we're the prostitutes. That's who we are. We're the ones who are unfaithful. We're the ones who are unfaithful to our creator. We're the ones who are unfaithful to the one who created us and loved us. It was scandalous when Hosea followed God's word and married a prostitute. Quite possibly, we don't know this, she was a prostitute in one of the temples of Baal. And as scandalous as that was, that's what the love of God is like. Because while we were weak, while we were sinners, we were covenant breakers, we were spiritual prostitutes, God loved you enough that his son died for you. We can make sense when people die for a good person. It makes sense when a husband would lay down his life to protect his wife or his family. It makes sense when a military hero lays down his life for a country because of the ideals he believes in. Sure, someone might die for a good person, but who would die for a bad person? 
Who would die for someone who willingly breaks a covenant? God's love is scandalous. The other point that we take from Hosea's story and his book is the costly love of God. In Hosea chapter 3, verse 2, this was right after God told Hosea, even though your wife has left you, go back, purchase her freedom, and take her home. And he says this, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Here's what this probably means. Hosea spent every dime he had to buy her back. It cost Hosea everything. Now, how do we know that? Well, we kind of have to read between the lines. But here's what we know from the ancient world. The price of a slave was 30 pieces of silver. That's also why Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's why the religious leaders paid him that price. Well, Hosea didn't have 30 pieces of silver. He only had 15 which means Hosea gave everything he had to purchase the freedom of the wife he loved, but who had not loved him in return. And it symbolizes the costly love of God. If we continue on in Romans 10, where we just were, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God appeased his own wrath at our covenant unfaithfulness by spilling his own blood. It cost Jesus everything. The costly love of God. And here's a third lesson that we take from the story of Hosea in his book. The redeeming love of God. Hosea chapter 11, verse 8. In the midst of all of her sin, all of her covenant unfaithfulness, all of her spiritual adultery and prostitution, this is what God says in thinking about his people. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. In the midst of all of her unfaithfulness, all of her spiritual idolatry, adultery, prostitution, and the repeated breaking of covenant faithfulness again and again and again and again, Compassion and love grow deep within the heart of God for his people. Look at the last part of Romans that we were just reading. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his, the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Though we were his enemies, his love triumphed 
to reconcile us back. He gave everything he had to buy our freedom again. Though we were enslaved to our own idolatry, he bought our freedom. He reconciled us to himself. He redeemed us. Oh, the redeeming love of God. The people had neglected God's word and his teaching. So they didn't see that their current behavior was inconsistent with wholehearted loyalty and devotion to God. Because they had forgotten about God's faithfulness to them in the past, they conformed their thinking and their behavior to the dominant culture of their day. They failed to see how their syncretism, the combining of these multiple belief systems and their pluralism of beliefs and practices had warped their worldview and affected their definitions of the family, approved forbidden sexual behavior, and promoted economic prosperity over moral responsibility. Unfaithfulness and disloyalty to God was paramount to adultery against God, with whom we have been covenantly bound. But there's hope. If you remember from chapter 1, the names of Hosea's children, Jezreel, to remind them of their great sin, no mercy to remind them that God would not ignore their sins and judgment would one day come. And his third, a son, not my people, because they no longer represented the God, their God, and so God was no longer going to allow them to. But even in chapter 1, there's hope. Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Yet, yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. One day you will be great as a people. My people won't be able to even be numbered. One day they will look at you and call you children of God. And one day they will all come together under a new king. This new king, King Jesus. Yet, God said, despite your sin, despite your failures, despite your idolatry, despite your spiritual prostitution, yet there will come a day under a new king where all will be made right and you will once again be my children. This is the same idea that we get in the New Testament when reflecting on the life and the ministry of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But 
but God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation comes only when we recognize and acknowledge God's utter hatred of sin and his deep desire to forgive spiritual prostitutes like you and I. Although his love is not deserved, it is available for all who seek him. Let's pray. Lord, we just confess to you in this moment that we are covenant breakers, that we have been unfaithful, that we have sought joy and satisfaction and freedom in other things. And it's resulted in slavery, a heavy burden that we can't bear. And Lord, we turn to you because of your great love, because of the compassion that burns deep inside of you to redeem your people. We turn to you not because we're worthy or because we deserve it, but because you are worthy. And even though we break our end of the covenant, you are faithful to keep your end. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for a minute. The story of Hosea is heavy. Maybe, maybe none more so than for Hosea himself. But his story and his ministry remind us of our own lives. But this is a story that ends in celebration because we get to celebrate the love of God this morning. Yes, he hates sin, but he loves you, the sinner. And he loves you enough that he died for you. And so as we respond this morning, we're going to go to the table. We invite all of those of you in here who have believed in Jesus to the table to take of that broken bread, his broken body for you, to take of the cup, his blood poured out for you, the new covenant in his blood. And we invite you to the table to be reminded of his great love. And if this morning you have never given your heart and your life to Jesus, you have not been saved by faith, this is the moment that God offers a covenant relationship with you. A covenant that you no doubt will break, but he will not. Despite our sin and our failures, he will remain faithful. And if that's something you desire, if it's a covenant relationship you want to be a part of, a God who loves you that much, the invitation is open for you. Right now, where you sit, to give your heart and your life to Him.
to believe in his death and resurrection and to confess him as Lord. If you haven't done that, right where you sit, will you do it now? Lord, thank you for this moment, as heavy as it may be, that we get to celebrate how your love triumphs over our unfaithfulness. Would you be honored by the way we respond to your great love right now? We pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?